our current society doesn't necessarily allow for uh, men to gain the skills to emote, to discuss what's going on in a way that makes sense for them. And so what happens is that this gets, it gets bottled up. There's all this protector and provider tradition around lots of guys being the breadwinner and they feel um, like failures because they are currently seeking a, a form of manhood that is literally unattainable. This idea that I should be this person, I should strive towards um, perfection when in fact nobody will ever get there and no one should because that's just not what humanity is. Whether it's the clothes you wear to work or a metaphor for putting up a front, we all wear a uniform. But often there's a lot going on behind the uniform and many of us are reluctant to express how we are really feeling. Each week on Behind the Uniform, Dr Izzy Smith and Captain Hugo Tuvey will be joined by a special guest as they talk openly and honestly about their experiences with mental health. Nothing will be off limits, so prepare yourself for tears, laughter and goosebumps. Thank you for joining us today, Dr Zach Seidler. Thanks so much, guys. Great to be here. No, we re- really appreciate you giving up your time. We know you're a busy, busy man, um, especially probably in the last what, 12, 18 months. You've probably been even busier than you normally are, which uh, I suppose can be bittersweet for you, Zach. When, you, when you're busy, it means that there's... Uh, more men out there who are potentially doing it tough. Definitely. It's a, uh, it's a bit of a double-edged sword in a way, you know, shit hits the fan and I get uh, busier and I'm very grateful obviously to both have a job right now and to be useful um, in what feels like a pretty useless time for many people. Um, but it's, it's full on. And I think that, you know, Izzy would know that, um, you know, healthcare workers are doing it tough as well at the moment. And there's a lot of demand on us. Um, but I'm just leaning into it and trying um, to find my own, you know, boundaries and and um, do as, as much as I can for the people that I'm trying to look after. I feel you, Zach, on the busy and feeling stressed, but also feeling guilty for feeling bad because lucky enough to have a job. But before we get into your work with Movember and talking about men's mental health, just a bit about you and a question we ask all of our guests. What are you doing when you're at your happiest? Oh, love that. Um, I feel like all of the people that know me well would say that I was lying if I didn't say in the ocean. Um, I'm really lucky to live right near Bondi and um, swimming every morning is, I I just, I smile underwater, I realised the other day. So it's a a really happy place for me. I do do see your your social media post, Zach, and you do seem to spend a lot of time um, in the eastern beaches in Sydney, which is is fantastic. It's a good place to be, especially when the sun's out. So it's starting to heat up, which I love. Um, now, look, Zach, onto your your role um, outside of your your day to day. You know, being a, being a psychologist and the important work you do uh, in that space. But um, as far as Movember goes, you're the global director of mental health training at Movember. What does that actually mean, and then what does that uh, entail? You know, what do you actually do in that role? How good are titles? Just words and an it's order. A, it's, an, it's an impressive title. <laughs> yeah, that's all I was here for. That's all I wanted. But um, no, it, it, it really means, uh, you know, obviously Movember has a really, you know, wide spectrum of, of work that we do. Um, and lots of people obviously don't know. I'm sure that many of your listeners do know that uh, while we raise a lot of funds, most of that money goes back into our own programs to serve those men, um, you know, that have raised money for us. And so... Um, what my role really entails is focusing on um, the training side of things. That is, who are the people that we're trying to serve and how can we ensure that the services that they get 
are actually meeting their needs. So for instance, I run a program called Men in Mind, which is funded by Movember, which is a training program for psychologists, psychiatrists, GPs, anyone who works in the mental health space with men to make sure that they are ready, that they are armed and and um, trained with the knowledge to be able to actually respond to men when the guys come in. Um, I also work in obviously the suicide prevention space. So we're currently creating gatekeeper training that is focused on how to talk to men about um, suicide, how to actually have these conversations with them. And so really when it comes down to training, there are three pillars in a way. The first is obviously mental health professionals like myself that I wanna make sure are ready to deal with men. There's you know the mates, um, that are that are responding, and then there's ov- obviously also uh, family members in the broader community that we want to upskill to understand what's going on in in men's lives and be able to break through that awkwardness and discomfort. You know, there's just there's a lot of banter and not a lot of substance sometimes. You know. No, I, I love that, Zach. And, and just quickly, you mentioned uh, men in mind, which we'll probably cover more uh, later on in the podcast. But um, there was something I read. Um, a bit of a quote, um, which is uh, all about the men in mind, which I think is pretty powerful. And it says, if you can manage to connect with men, help them find their voice and make them feel comfortable, the changes you can make together are life altering, um, which I think is really powerful. And it just highlights the important work that, that you're doing for Movember um, and, and part of the projects that Movember continue to work on, which is great. Cheers, Hugo. And Zach, just a bit more about how you got into this uh, mental health space. I know you personally, you know, lost your dad to suicide, which is heartbreaking. And I once read that you often asked, did you become a psychologist because of how your dad died? And you said, no, it's because of how he lived. Can you tell us a little bit more about what your dad was like and how he's inspired you to do the amazing work you're doing today? For sure. Thanks for that. It's, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting one when people always believe that your life path is created by trauma or tragedy. Um, And there's a lot to be said for, you know, post-traumatic growth and that idea that we can really come out of uh, painful events, uh, you know, with new understanding and a new lens on life, which is is beautiful. And I know Hugo's been through that as a viewer. And so I think that that is something to take into account. But when it comes to my dad, it was really uh, what he taught me, what I saw, what I witnessed in the way that he lived his life. So he was a GP in, in King's Cross um, for you know 30 years. He worked with the most disadvantaged people day in, day out. He started methadone clinics in Sydney. He brought in safe injecting rooms to make sure that addicts had a place to go where they weren't going to overdose and, 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 and die in, in silence. You know? And so um, I was like 14 when I started working in the cross as uh, his receptionist and God, the, the stuff that I saw, what I was witnessing um, and he came out every day, every time there was someone in the waiting room and regardless of if they were, you know, wearing rags or had slept on the street or if they were, you know, there are celebrities all throughout the cross. It didn't, didn't matter if they were sex workers. He's, he greeted them with the exact same response, the same smile, the same care. Um, and it's that, it's that attitude, it's that belief in, in the humanity of people and seeing um, all that everyone has to offer rather than seeing, you know, their circumstance um, and, and the fact that um, they might be broken now, but I've always had such belief in the fact that um, things can only get better if we provide the support for them. So he, off, he offered me that opportunity and I got to meet so many personalities at such a young age, which obviously meant that 
psychology was a calling for me because I just was fascinated by personality and um, he just cared. He cared deeply. And, um, you know, that's, that's what I take with me. Correct me if I'm wrong. It was about seven, eight years ago. Um, yeah. Eight, eight years ago, 20, 2013. And so that would have made you how old? I was 21 at the time. 21. And mm. I, I also, um, I believe you're studying psychology at the time. So you're already under that sort of in, in that, um, that pathway but it must give you even today a bit of that sense of motivation when you have some of your clients and some of these men who are, who are going through some extremely challenging times. It must give you a little bit of that motivation um, knowing what you personally went through. Mm, for sure. Well, they always talk about lived experience and there's, there's no way that any psychologist, you know, doctor, anyone um, hasn't got their own story that they bring into these things. Um, but it does make it um, especially useful, I think, and, and really helps give me the motivation um, when I'm, when I'm sitting through and, and rather than um, that sense of, of tragedy or uselessness, which I think really couples suicide. Sometimes you feel really like there's uncertainty in the, the, you know, carpet's been pulled out from underneath you. If you can have the right people around you and the right supports. And I'm so thankful to my mom and I've got three siblings, like whether we're a gang straight up. So that, that ability to lean on each other and work through what was happening and go, what are we going to do now? You know, how are we going to, how are we going to move forward? Uh, knowing that I had that behind me and knowing that regardless of, of dad's actions, um, he would never, and this is something that's really important for anybody who is grieving, he would never have wanted us to crumble, you know, and that is the last thing, you know, despite the pain that he was going through, he, he really did probably believe that he was doing the right thing for us. And so um, I'm not here to be angry. You know, you work through that as it, as it comes, but I'm, I'm here to, to do something with his legacy. And that means that when I see fathers, you know, 40 and 50 year old fathers with new kids who are really struggling with depression, I will give them everything because um, I can tell them what their kids will miss out on. Zach, I just want to say your dad sounds like a beautiful, beautiful man. And as a doctor myself, I just know that exact type of physician who's their patients just love them and they're such a pillar of their community and so strong for so many people. And just what an amazing role model you've had and you still have in his legacy. So I'm so sorry for your loss. And at the same time, just what a, yeah, a beautiful man and how lucky we were, the world was to have him and the amazing changes he made. Thanks, Izzy. You know, thanks, Zach. It's, it's really powerful and uh, we really appreciate you sharing that. It's, you know, it, it does put, um, you know, that whole lived experience, side, that personal connection and the importance in, in why you do what you do. It's, it's why, you know, I do what I do and it's, it's why Izzy does what she does. And I think it's great when people have that, that uh, motivation and that personal connection in, in wanting to, um, to, to do good in the world, which is great. We would all, we would all love to not have trauma behind our, mm -hmm. <laughs> behind our lives, but nonetheless, finding ways to turn that into a, into a positive, into energy, into motivation to, to sh change things so that others don't have to go through that is that's enough for me. And talking of change, Zach, we're going to talk about mental illness and men's mental health, but can you just briefly explain the difference about what, you know, mental health is versus mental illness and mm. how that is relative, especially in the kind of mental health and suicide space? For sure. It's a, it's a bit of a minefield for the, the general population, let alone, you know, practitioners trying to describe this stuff. Um, and now there's the other term mental ill health, which is like, okay, God, let's, let's try and let's just merge these together and see where we end up. 
Something that's really important that I want to stress is that the difference between mental health and mental illness is a very, very fine line, a really, really fine line. And um, whenever I get on a, a call, you know, are you okay day is, is around the corner. Movember's, you know, always uh, something that I, I end up in these conversations about uh, the fact that you are in a vast minority if you do not experience periods where your mental health is, is suffering. Um, you know, no matter who, who you are, man or woman, um, there's, there's a lot of denial that goes on. Um, but nonetheless, we, we can all kind of, if we get down to the, the bare bones of it, realise that we have significant periods where we, where we struggle and where we might not necessarily admit that. But the thing is, is that that spectrum between mental health and mental illness um, is, is a spectrum. It is constantly moving day to day. And that's something that people don't realize. They go, oh, he has a mental illness, like schizophrenia or something. Whereas I just get anxious sometimes, you know? And I think that something that we need to, to realize in the way that we conceptualize of this stuff is that um, while, you know, our diagnostic idea is that you have to experience certain symptoms for say two weeks at a time um, for, to reach criteria for depression as we, as we call them in the, in the biz. So, you know, you need to tick off a certain number of boxes, whether that's feelings of hopelessness, worthlessness, uh, lack of energy, fatigue, struggle eating, um, all of those types of symptoms for a, a really, you know, consistent two week period, for instance, to reach a diagnosis. The difference between that and somebody who has it for 13 days, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and then they come out of it. It doesn't mean that they don't require a chat. They don't require some, some form of intervention. And this is not to say that we should go about, um, you know, making our whole population sick by, by changing definitions. It just shows that this is something that should just be inbuilt in every business, in every friendship group, in every community to go, this is, this is so common, this is so prevalent. Um, and it's something that can really, you know, obviously hit us all uh, in ways that we might not even realize. I love that explanation, Zach. And I know for me personally, my mind was blown when I heard the concept of mental health sitting on a spectrum. And my own mental health has been really impacted by being a doctor at times. And, you know, there was a moment where I was in the country, locoming, crying in the fetal position on the floor because a patient had died and I had felt responsible. But, you know, I didn't even think that... I had poor mental health. I didn't even really know what it was about. And that understanding of it sitting on a spectrum has been so beneficial for me to teach me to be self-aware of where I am on that spectrum and needing to, you know, do some conscious actions to improve my mental health at the time. With that in mind and talking about that we all have our mental health impacted at times, do you think in any way that, this normalization of poor mental health being very common takes away from the significance and severity of people with quite severe mental illness, let's say bipolar, schizophrenia. I sometimes worry, um, and it's a two-edged sword, and I'm not a mental health professional, um, that the normalization of poor mental health could be maybe taking away from the significant impact of mental illness. Huge call, and I completely agree with you. And I and I rally against uh, this idea that all 
people's you know struggles are are equal in many ways because um they're not and they come from very different reasons for instance you know looking at social determinants as we call them of, of health which are you know homelessness and uh, financial distress and you know all of this relationship breakdown stuff and being a migrant and there's so many different things that happen to people those are completely out of their control in many instances and yet um you know we keep going it's the individual's responsibilities to look after their mental health. You know, if you just go for a run and they're like, I, don't, gratitude have, I don't have a home, I don't have a home, yeah. like go to hell. So I think that um, th that's something that's really important. But secondly, the idea that anxiety and depression, um, you know, and having fleeting uh, experiences, obviously, which, which deserve attention um, of, you know, panic or whatever it may be, are in no way comparable to the severity of schizophrenia, bipolar, um, you know, BPD, there are, you know, by, uh, borderline personality disorder. There's so many really, really complex mental health issues that permeate someone's whole existence to the point mm. where they actually can't function. And so what I'm advocating for, and I continue to tr try and promote, is the notion of, of stepped care, which is that um, people who have really mild symptoms deserve care they deserve support but they deserve totally different support to somebody who is really really unwell and putting them all in the same box and fighting and this is this is, says a lot about how mental health is is um considered in our society because it's such a new concept that no one gave a shit about for so long it's now just like oh we need to look at mental health and we're just going to throw this term everywhere and what we're losing is the individuality, is the specificity, is the idea that people struggle in totally different ways and require different intervention and care. And so we need to see that someone with, uh, you know, bipolar, se severe bipolar, for instance, requires a multidisciplinary team. They require really different care to someone with your, your everyday anxiety, which, which is still significant to that person, but, you know, is unde undeniably different. Mm. No, it's it's a it's a really um, I love just listening to the two of you uh, go at it and get your uh, collective <laughs> brains together. You're a lot smarter than me, but I love it. I'm almost like a listener myself. My partner's <laughs> a psychotherapist, so he always like preps me before the podcast, and I sound a lot more knowledgeable and smarter than I really am. It's just like Paul, you know, permeating. No, it's great, and and thanks, um, yeah, thanks for the summary. But from from my understanding, from sitting here and and being a, that sort of impartial listener, almost it's um. It, you know, mental health is a complex topic. There, there's no denying that. And I think people even listening to this episode right now are probably, you know, getting confused with, with some of what we're saying. But but ultimately, if we, we strip it right back and, and, and talk about the alarming statistics, which we hear all the time, and, and that's the suicide rates, um, we know they're only going up. Um, we know that uh, it's now on average seven men every day uh, dying by suicide. Um, so we know those statistics are there. We know they're going up. But if we kind of... I guess, um, you know, put the gender side into it and compare that to say, why are the statistics so alarming for men as opposed to women? Um, I'll be interested to hear your views on that, Zach. The interesting thing is that uh, you don't realise, and both of you do this now as well, you talk about mental health, you know, often for a living in many ways. Um, when I talk about suicide left, right and centre, um, it, it's really interesting how it really hits home for lots of people. Um, in ways that I don't even realize because I'm just doing it all day, every day. And it's not that it's lost its power. It's just that um, you start to, you don't become numb, but you just start to, to see things in different ways. And I see the problem rather than the, the grief 
in, in some way. So I, I start to really attack um, the fact that there is something really seriously wrong with, you know, not only our mental health system, but our society, if this continues to happen. Um, you talk about seven men a day, Hugo. I remember the day when the Bureau of Statistics released, I think it was in, in 2019, it was during November, they released their new stats and we had all of these assets ready to roll for November. That said six, six men a day. Yeah. I can remember that too. And it had gone up to seven men a day. Yeah. And I said, we need to, we need to change all of this. And it was thousands of assets. We had all of this social media stuff. And it, you know, I, I just asked the team to just take a moment to think about, because um, these numbers mean very little, you know, when it comes down to it. We need to understand that the difference between six and seven in, in a single day across this country uh, are the thousands of people that are affected um, as a result of losing somebody um, in such a way. And so um, firstly, I think that that's really important. And to all of you listeners, anybody who has ex experienced this or, um, you know, been in contact with somebody who has lost their, their life to suicide, um, which is the vast majority of the population across Australia and the world, um, you know, continuing to stay positive and hopeful for change is really, really important. Um, nonetheless, the reasons why the male suicide rate is so high in comparison to the female suicide rate. And I, and I should point out that the young females are actually on the rise as well, which is really worrying at the moment. Mm. Um, but middle-aged men and older men make up the vast majority of suicides in the Western world. Um, the, the rates are staggering um, and, and continue to act as a black box in some way that we cannot unpack for some reason, because each suicide has such a unique story behind it and so many diverse circumstances that are really hard to, to, to understand. But nonetheless, there are some similar themes. And the thing that's really important to understand is something called the gender paradox, which is the idea that women attempt suicide far more often than men do. You hear about and you see and you witness depression and anxiety, for instance, is much more common in women than it is in men. Um, I call bullshit on that. Um, and that's because the vast majority of men that I come into contact with um, have never spoken about their mental health issues before. And I'm very lucky to get to witness them still alive and still willing to, to talk to me. But there's so many other guys um, who never reach, reach out and who never reach services. And so they slip through the cracks. Um, so that means that, you know, while many more women, you know, present with distress, uh, many men must have underlying you know, issues going on that, that never see the light of day. And so we end up with, with men um, taking their own lives at three to four times the rate of women. Um, and the reasons for that are really complex. There's the idea of, of method and the fact that men often take their lives in much more lethal ways. Um, there's also the idea around um, masculinity, which is what, you know, much of my research is about, uh, which is the idea that self-reliance is actually the strongest predictor of suicidality in men, this over-reliance on the self, the idea that I can just get through this, she'll be right, I'll push on. There is nothing wrong with self-reliance in a healthy manner, yeah? Flexibility, and, and this is where, and we don't need to get into the, the politics of, of toxic masculinity or anything like that, but... Did you just say toxic masculinity? God forbid, no, not me. <laughs> the idea that, that anything is fundamentally toxic is, again, just crap. There are facets of masculinity that if you stick to them like they are gospel they are going to harm you undeniably you know um and so if you're a firefighter 
and you're not stoic in the face of a fire, you're done for. But when you come out, can you debrief? Can you be vulnerable? Can you talk through what you've seen and, and, and process that emotion? And so, uh, you know, our, our current society doesn't necessarily allow for uh, men to gain the skills to emote, to discuss what's going on in a way that makes sense for them. And so what happens is that this gets, it gets bottled up. There's all this protector and provider tradition around lots of guys being the breadwinner and they feel um, like failures because they are currently seeking a, a form of manhood that is literally unattainable. This idea that I should be this person, I should strive towards um, perfection when in fact nobody will ever get there and no one should because that's just not what humanity is. Mm. It's funny, Zach, you said about this self-reliance and it was a real light bulb moment for me of someone who's done Movember for 10 years in memory of my dad who died of cancer. And I really initially pushed the see your GP, get things checked out. But then I had this light bulb moment of my dad who was a farmer, you know, the breadwinner, the patriarch of the family he couldn't ask for help even with his physical health he couldn't seek a doctor even you know showing weakness in a physical sense was too much for him and he had heaps of warning signs he had lymph glands on his neck he was losing weight all of these red flags and it was this light bulb moment that the reason our men are dying from physical health things are the same reasons that men are suiciding because it's this self-reliance and that even a physical health problem that you have absolutely no say over, cancer, it's still considered this weakness. And that's when I really thought, you know, if I'm going to do the biggest bang from the buck in November, it's going to talk about these cultures and behavior traits that men are exhibiting. And as you said, trying to, you know, lean towards that are just completely unattainable um, that we're seeing so many, you know, men die physically and from mental health more. Um, so yeah, thank you for that. And that no you said talking about these traits, do you think, and it's interesting because I also, sorry, Hugo, I'm doing lots of medical chat. Um, no, go on. Like I said, I'm trying to learn. I'm writing stuff down. <laughs> and what you said about men having as much mental illness as women, a lot of my patients are middle-aged men with type two diabetes mm -hmm. and they come in. And they pour their hearts out to me. They're so obviously depressed. They're lonely. They're going over things that happened 30 years ago. But because they're not here to see me about their mental illness, they're here to see me about their diabetes, which we talk about for three minutes. And then the rest of the conversation, you know, 20 minutes is about their what's going on in life. And it really demonstrates to me that men do want to open up, but they're holding back and would never see a mental health professional, but they're happy to talk to the endocrinologist about, you know, their childhood trauma. Yeah, it, it is, it is overflowing. And that's exactly what it, and, and I should, I should point out that thankfully the, the number of men who are seeking help for their mental health is on the rise and hopefully, and thanks to podcasts like this and movements like November, change is coming and it's inevitable and everyone's just got to get on board because it's just happening. But something that's, that's important is that it is literally um, and I, I get so many men, you know, who don't want to be there, who are forced in by their partners or by their mothers and they come in and the first three sessions, I literally just get grunts or I just get, you know, silence and there's, there's nothing going on. And then we get to the point where um, they realize that it's a waste of everybody's time if they don't just start the conversation. And so we end up with what is 
you know, just that, as I said, that overflowing, my best mate's a physio and he said he deals with mental health more than he does physical health because they're lying there. They're having literally, um, you know, the stress pushed out of them and uh, they just break down. Everybody is struggling. And the other thing that's really important is the vast majority of middle-aged men do not have good mates that they can rely on to talk about this stuff. You know, Mm -hmm. we know, and we've done so much work at Movember around social connection and the fact that middle-aged men lose friends as they age and they end up in really difficult situations where they have no one that they can emotionally rely on other than their partner. And then they overburden their partner and then there's relationship breakdown and then everyone's in the shitter. So that's a real, you know, serious concern. I love that point, Zach, that you mentioned. And it's um, for, for people listening as well, there are different types of therapy, right? You know, it doesn't necessarily mean therapy for you might be seeing that psychologist um, or that clinical professional, you know, a, a form of therapy could be talking to your mate. And um, I'm a big fan of Gotcha for Life and the important work that Gus Wallen does. And that concept of you don't need to have 20 or 30 mates and be the most popular kid in school anymore. Even if you have one or two really good friends or good mates that you can reach out to when, when times are tough and vice versa, I think it's important that, yeah, yeah that, that mindset of having to be, uh, to be popular and have a, a big wide, wide uh, covering friendship group um, is not necessarily um, the important part. A mile wide and an inch deep. That doesn't, that doesn't go very far when it comes to looking after yourself and being known. So yeah, I would, I would always say, You've got one or two close mates that you can actually talk to about what is happening in your life, you know, and you need to, we need to see more models of that. Mm. We need to see, you know, the whole idea around, uh, you know, mental health and, and, and discussing what therapy looks like or discussing what I want to get to the point where the way that men talk about their physio or their cardiologist or whatever it may be, they talk about their psychologist. It's yeah. like, damn, this guy was good. You should go and see him. That when that day comes, I'll retire. Isn't it funny though? I, like I'm open with it. I still see my psychologist via telehealth every few weeks. Fortunately, I, I'm in a situation in the army that I can get that support. Mm. But I still, every day, like depending who it is, I still feel a little bit that that, that awkwardness of, of um, you know, I'll be late to the park or the the pub or whatever that might be. I, you know, I'm seeing my psychologist. Like when I say it, I, I still say it. But there's just still that sense of just it's a bit uncomfortable. Well, we weren't, we don't, we don't, as I said, we don't have, we're not brought up with that same development. You know, everyone talks about these stereotypes of the fact that uh, boys are brought up to deal with things and women are brought up to deal with people. And that's why you end up watching all of these, these women in caring professions and men being engineers as a stereotype, for instance. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we need our boys to be trained to have tea parties where they're talking to in, in, invisible people about, you know, their feelings and what's going on. We need to, we didn't have that. So even where I'm trying to retrofit as a you, Hugo, a, a new masculinity in a way onto the way that we were brought up and the way that our mates go about things. So I'm hoping that the next generation, if anything, can do this a bit more comfortably. But I just recommend to everyone to just push past that discomfort because, you know, as I always say, when people come in in, in crisis, I'm like, this would have been a lot easier a couple of months ago. And I know it felt real damn awkward then. And I know that it was, it was something that felt like you didn't really need to deal with it, but damn, how uncomfortable is this right now? We're struggling to get you out of bed. I'm struggling to get you to talk to your wife. You know, you're on the verge of divorce, whatever it may be. We could have nipped this in the bud earlier. And, and that's something that we really need to get on top of. Prevention is better than the cure when it comes to our mental health, as well as our physical health. Amen. I've always got this little powerful um, quote that one of my brigade commanders mentioned during a meeting 
once upon a time, he, he spoke about the prevention of thousands rather than the crisis of hundreds. And I always think that's um, a really powerful part of what we're trying to talk about. Anyway, back to you, Izzy. <laughs> uh, um, but things, cultures are definitely changing. And as you said, Hugo, about now telling people you see a psychologist. I can remember that one of the first years I did Movember running up Mount Wellington with some of the Mobros who were pretty blokey and Shawnee saying, oh, this person's my psychologist. And my my, my jaw dropped to the ground. I was like a blokey hot guy just openly telling me <laughs> that he's seeing a psychologist. And that changed my life incredibly that moment. And there's these big stereotypes between men and women, as if women are naturally you know, capable of expressing how they're feeling and knowing everything. And it's kind of bullshit. Um, I think women maybe have better support networks, as you said, Zach, but I don't like this divide that happens because it's just not completely true. What, what it comes down to is that women practice. <laughs> they have more opportunity to practice more. And if we provide the opportunities for boys to give this a go, and that's why I love businesses like man cave and tomorrow man who are going into schools and trying to shift it up so that they can get the mm. vocabulary that's all it is it's like what word do i use to describe what this is this feeling exactly now, just briefly do you think that because there definitely is as we said men feeling having to be completely self-reliant not show any weakness and that is definitely a true phenomenon do you think this is mainly cultural or is there a biological aspect as well mm. um <laughs> If I believed that it was biological, I would be- Your job would be pointless. (laughs) Which is always what I say, which is that if I don't think anything can change, then I'm just going to down tools and just call it. Because, uh, you know, there has to be, I have to have belief in behavioral intervention. I have to have belief that if I I can shift little things here and there, even if they are in, in some way biologically ingrained, there's no way that there aren't you know, and the idea, you know, people always rely on testosterone. Everyone always says, oh, testosterone is the reason that men are angry and aggressive and, and women aren't. And there's just no evidence for that. If anything... And there's a lot of bloody angry women as well. Exactly. You you actually get to the point where uh, there's awesome research which shows that men get aggressive and then testosterone comes on. You know, it's, it's an after effect which actually promotes the aggression in an ongoing manner rather than the fact that... Uh, it is the thing that is driving men to behave in certain ways. So the the really important study, um, and I've got the book here, it's by Judy Chu. It's called When Boys Become Boys. She works on our global advisory committee at Movember, incredible woman. She followed um, a group of uh, kindergarten boys from the age of four to six, and she watched. And when they were four years old, they had a a broader emotional spectrum than the girls. They were tantruming everywhere. They're crying like crazy. That you know, they're laughing. There's joy. There's everything. And then slowly, she watches over time as they interact with one another. They interact with their parents. She sees how their fathers interact with them. And slowly but surely, they lose both ends of the spectrum. They lose not only the sadness and the ability to to share what what is getting them down, but they lose joy. They lose happiness and and real excitement. And you can witness that in plenty of these guys who I see who just have muted emotional expression. And that's just the saddest thing to me. So we need to keep those ends open. There's nothing within us that is stopping us from doing that. Hey, Zach, you mentioned down the word change there. Um, and absolutely, yes, we've come a long way. And although we are making progress, obviously there's clearly a long way to go. But we talk about those suicide rates and how they're increasing. Is it sometimes when you... 
you know, you receive those statistics and data each year. Is it almost deflating in a way with all the hard work and the, the, the advocacy work and the work you do on a daily basis with your clients and patients that is it almost deflating when you, you see those suicide rates continue to climb to almost think, Jesus Christ, like, what more can I do here? Like, I'm, I'm, we're not even making progress as far as where it really matters. Mm, hugely. And I think that that, um, you know, those moments when you see those stats are, are really overwhelming because, as I said, I, tr- I try to just take a moment to think about each of those people and, and where they come from and who, who's been affected by their, their death. But beyond that, I think that we need to realise the limitations of what we're trying to do. And Movember is, a, is, is one piece of a very complex puzzle. You know, we're working only on men and we're working only in the early intervention and prevention space. You know, then there's the whole crisis side of things where the lifelines and beyond blues come in. Um, each of those facets need to start working together. They need to understand that this is something, um, you know, that is constantly shifting. And, and the thing that's, that always keeps me up at night is the idea that um, there are really clear underprivileged um, populations that just are not being heard, are not being intervened with, are not being respected. Um, and that's why the numbers, you know, continue to go the way they are. Our regional and rural, uh, you know, farming communities, um, they, just, they just do not get the attention that they deserve, let alone, uh, you know, migrants and, and um and refugees who have horrible mental health issues as well. Um, there, are, there are just so many complex, and we cannot do broad brushstrokes anymore. That's what it comes down to. We need to start to be uh, really, really specific in what we're trying to achieve. And so the thing that, that really drives me nonetheless is that I truly believe that the work that we're doing now is, is filtering down. It is just taking a long time because cultural change, you know, as, as you look at the women's movement, you look at the civil rights movement, it takes a very long time. We need to get this really into communities, into workplaces, into the places where, where men work and play. And so that's going to take, you know, a generation, I, I really do believe, but mm. it's never going to stop me. No, well, well said, Zach. And hearing you say that actually um, is, is really almost uh, re- reassuring. Like you said, you know, the, the important work's being done. It, it does take time, but moving on, from that and kind of linking with, with the next sort of question I have for you, um, you, you touched on, um, touched on lifeline just then. And, and something we um, we've spoken about previously is that the, you know, during the pandemic and that the whole COVID lockdowns um, they're receiving some of the, the highest rates of calls they've ever received, um, which kind of goes to show what you're saying about, we, we kind of are making progress because obviously that means that more men are, are reaching out and calling lifeline. Right. Um, but on those suicide rates, have you got any sort of initial data to show what they're looking like uh, at the moment during the whole last sort of year or 18 months during the whole COVID pandemic and, and ongoing lockdowns? I do. Here's something I prepared earlier. So, <laughs> um, I've, I've been, there is a huge movement at the moment amongst anti-vaxxers and anti-lockdown movements uh, to try and weaponize mental health against uh, politicians and other, and other people to say, how dare you do this? Um, you are literally killing people. Uh, while something that is really important and has to be taken into account is that distress is on the rise. There's no doubt about that. We've seen the amount of people going into emergency departments, calling Lifeline is is constantly rising each week, really, Um, especially among young people. And that is seriously concerning. And that shows uh, that we are faced with, you know, what lots of people are calling a shadow pandemic, which is that it's slowly following the 
the physical COVID-19 pandemic in that this, this mental health situation is going to be a really long-term one that we need to look at. Nonetheless, the suicide statistics out of New South Wales, Queensland and Victoria are showing very clearly that there has been no significant rise in suicide rates in the past year, 2020 and half, first half of 2021. Wow, that's interesting. I would have thought that uh, would have been the opposite. I think, Hugo, it demonstrates that if we hear stuff that is incorrect enough, we start believing it. Mm -hmm. And that is what all of our social media is being, you know, thrown with rates of suicide is up. And it's so disappointing that people are politicizing something as important as suicide for, you know, personal gain. Mm -hmm. And I think we really need to take our hats off to all the mental health care professionals, the teachers, and each of us who are supporting our friends, our family members, that those rates haven't gone up. Mm. And it shows that cultures are changing, that so many people have lost their jobs and all these risk factors for suicide, but we haven't you know, seen the rates go up. Yeah, good point is. I think that we should uh, nonetheless, and, and to all of the listeners, you know, never become complacent when it mm-hmm. comes to this stuff. In the same way that progress is slowly filtering down, um, the difficulties of this pandemic are going to filter down um, over time. And I think that once we get out of this situation, uh, that's when we need to do the hard yards to make sure that we look after the most vulnerable and keep them, you know, looking after themselves. On that topic of the pandemic and that there's increased rates of stress, do you have any advice for people that may have lost their job or struggling with family separation? That's something I know I found really, really challenging. Mm. What's advice for people out there that are listening and going through a tough time, especially Mm. related to the pandemic? They're really, really big issues and they require, um, you know, equally in-depth discussion, I guess, in many ways, both for these people amongst their friends and family. The first thing is that um, when it comes to job loss, especially the shame and sense of failure that comes with that um, can be really overwhelming for lots of people. And it means that they recede and that they, they, they vanish away from their friendship groups so for anyone that has a has a mate who may have lost their job um just trying to uh you know act as a decoy runner in some ways and just shift the attention elsewhere to to discuss the future and and what's possible and what's you know and infiltrating a bit of hope into our conversations which is really just gone it's just at the moment it's i'm bored and I'm le- I'm lonely, and I'm this, and I'm that, and there's no there's there's no uh, future looking perspective at the moment. Um, and if we can inbuild that, and I think our politicians need to do it, and everyone needs to go, where are we moving now? Because we've we've got vaccinations on the rise, things are about to change, and we need to be ready for that. We need to move towards it. Um, so a bit of hope is always useful. Um, but really, when it comes down to the practical situations for people who are going through these really tough. Um, you know, transitions, I guess. It's a matter of understanding what you do and do not have control over. And that's a really easy thing for a shrink to say. But but knowing um, that you I can like be- that you call yourself a shrink. <laughs> I, I don't. I, God forbid. That's the worst. I actually hate it when other people do it, so I don't know why I did that. Um, but the idea that, uh, you know, we are uh, to blame, for instance, for for this situation if we're made redundant or, or otherwise. Um, and also understanding when it comes to a relationship breakdown, for instance, um, firstly, what, what are the, the takeaways? What can I take responsibility for as well? That's something that, you know, rather than railing against everything and, and, and going further to destroying not only your life, but that of, of, of your family and, um, and children, for instance, 
um, instead trying to go, all right, this has happened. You know, I, I am I am striving towards a healthy masculinity as we, as we like to promote. And so what can I do differently? What can I shift up here? What is not working? What is not useful for me? What can I shed and what can I add? And that's, you know, the idea around um, trying to seek out opportunities for growth and adaptation is something that should be fundamental to masculinity, you know? And that, that means that if shit hits the fan and things aren't going according to plan, that we pivot and we find a new way of doing things rather than doubling down. There's way too much of that going on in all of the, the, the blokes that I, that I see and I work with um, is that rather than admit that I need to do something differently, um, it seems much easier in some ways to just continue on a self-destructive path. And I really hope that we can, yeah, we can move past that. I guess that self-introspection can be uncomfortable because we need to take a little responsibility for some of the bad things that happen in our lives, like a relationship breakdown. Mm. And that's uncomfortable. It's, I guess, a bit of a, almost would that be shame feeling? Mm, exactly. Shame and fear. It's like, oh, I don't want to look at that. But what, what it comes down to and what I always tell all of the men in my life is, is the idea that, you know, why would you not want to know how to make things better? Why would you, what does denial do for you really? It seems like in the short term, it's a bit easier, but it's not because it's just sitting there as a lump in your stomach. And it's something that you really, really slowly but surely can, can you know, start to unpack and, and finding the people and the ways that that's going to be useful to you um, is, is really the only way to move past it. Yeah. Um, and look, I just wanted to um, ask you something there as well, Zach. And it's, it's an interesting point because um I advocate for my mates and, and people, uh, men especially, to, to seek help when, when they need it. But I find it's hard when, um, you know, you get some pretty stubborn characters that might uh, might not want the help. Um, and I think it's a common thing we might be experiencing with friends or loved ones when people refuse to get the help. And there's only so much you can do and you encourage them. And it's kind of a two-part question. Firstly, the, the people or the men who refuse the help, um, you know, what, what, what can you do? to encourage those men to, to seek that help. But also I've also had an example where someone's eventually said, you know what, fine, I'm doing it. It's a massive decision for them. They've gone to see a psychologist. I've asked them how it went and they said it was a complete waste of time. I hated it, but I tried it. I'm never going to go again. And you kind of think, ah, oh, fuck's sake. Now it's going to be even harder for them to try and get to go again, because we all know that often it can take many psychologists to you find one that, that works for you. But I'm interested to hear your, your views on that. For sure. Did he see me by any chance? No, I'm sure he would have uh, hit it off straight away with you. Yeah, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Um, the th that's a really great, great question, and and that stubbornness and that discomfort and those conversations, you know, that we have to push through as mates as well to try and have, um, you know, to to push them them forward and get them to understand that that um, things can look different. And I think that that's something that we don't necessarily do enough of. We do a lot of you should do this, you should do that, and this is you know the fundamentals of relationship counseling as well don't just say you should do that you should you know how dare you do this rather it's like i'm feeling that uh i'm really feeling overwhelmed by what you're going through at the moment and you know all of us friends and family would really you know it'd be really meaningful if you would go and and try to talk to someone about this so that you can look after yourself and we can all you know all adapt and develop together in a, in a way 
Drum rolls out, cue men of mind, right? That's kind of what you're you're trying to achieve there, right? To make therapy more comfortable and accessible. And I've been there. I've been there to earlier psychologists who it just wasn't right. And fortunately, I I saw a few more. And it took me about four. I think I'm up to my fourth now. And we click. I really like him. Uh, We get along with it. So what's your, I guess, argument to that where you kind of say, well, someone's given it a crack. They've jumped into the deep end, but they've walked out of it thinking it's a waste of time. What's going to motivate them to give it another second or third try? The health industry full stop is just not catering towards men at all. Like, you know, health and men are just not in the same sentence. It's just not a thing. Yeah. So we need to shift that up and make spaces that men feel comfortable in and feel like they are going to get what they what they want and what they need from from that. Um, when it comes to it, especially talking to, to your mates as well, though, Hugo, I think um, sharing the nitty gritty of what actually goes on, mm. because this is the thing when I talked about expectations before the vast majority of men, because we don't have these conversations actually don't know what is going to happen in there. They think it's magic. They think it's some one session and all their childhood. <laughs> Seriously, exactly. First, firstly, that secondly, it's like, it might take a, a few turns to try and meet someone. And that's also the responsibility of the psych or the social worker to go, oh, this is how long it might take. This is how difficult it might be. This is what it will involve. This is how much it will cost. This is how long it might take. All of those basic... Expectation management. Exactly, that Mm -hmm. no one is doing at the moment. It's just like, because the men don't want to ask questions because they don't want to look like an idiot. And the psychologist just wants to get on with it. I love that. I think this speaks for the therapist and people it's really important that people don't feel like there's something wrong with them or there's been a personal failure if they've seen a therapist once and it didn't go well. It's dating. It's literally dating. It was a shit date. Get over it. We're going to, we're going to find somebody else. There's plenty more fish in the sea and there are plenty more psychs out there. The problem is the wait lists are like crazy and it costs money. And there's all of these, these barriers. I get that a lot with the cost. Now I'm very privileged and fortunate, even again, being in defense because they cover the cost of um, these therapy sessions that I'm fortunate enough to have. What do you say to people, Zach, when, when they say, look, it's, it's all good and well, I get it. It's probably going to be beneficial for me, but I just cannot afford, um, you know, six, $80 gap a week, 80 bucks a week and, you know, commit to six plus however long it might take sessions with, with a Zach Seidler, who I know it's going to be really great, but I just can't afford it. What do you say to people who are in that situation? It's, it's a really complex one and, and totally, and something that I'm, I, I'm lucky to do in my private practice is that the people who can pay, um, I will, I will tell them that they are paying on behalf of those who can't. So, cause I, I work largely telehealth. So I see a lot of regional rural people. I don't work with, with those in, in the surrounding area. So um, I make sure that those people in, in the Eastern suburbs, for instance, who I do see, I let them know um, that they're hopefully doing a service by paying the full fee because I reduce my fees for, for other people. Lots of sites don't necessarily do that. What I always talk about is the investment in themselves. And that's something that's really uncomfortable for lots of guys, especially to deal with. Um, putting aside a time, you know, an hour of their day to not work and to not, you know, look after their children or cook or whatever it may be, let alone spending the money on themselves that is more of the discomfort than it is sometimes that they literally cannot afford it. So there are those people who literally cannot afford it. And mm-hmm. there are those people who don't believe that their own mental health is a worthy investment. And I try to make clear that firstly, we can do this fortnightly or every three weeks if need be. And that secondly, you know, hopefully this will really reduce the, the cost of, and, and companies are coming to terms with this shitty productivity, you know, 
just sick days, full stop. Like it, it affects your physical health as well. So if we can get on top of this stuff and get you feeling better, Dan, what do you want earth for, if not that? And that's what I say. It's so much more just about your own personal mental health. It's about your relationships, your ability to deal with stress at work, your entire, you know, broader life. life. You're right, Zach. There are the people who literally can't afford it, but then there are the same ones and that couple mates I've got it from before who probably happily spend a hundred bucks plus at the pub without blinking or, you know, have a, have a punt on the, uh, their favorite AFL team. But when it comes to putting 80 bucks, whatever aside for a psychologist where they're out of pocket, it's kind of like, Hey, I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not going to do that. So I've used that card as well, which kind of, uh, you know, makes them go, yeah, actually, you know what? Like I can do that. So no, all really, um, really insightful points there about the whole therapist thing. But for those who might not necessarily being um, needing to see a professional psychologist stripping it right back um what's something they can do even listening to this now um to improve their own mental health i can see easy just saying say green smoothies please <laughs> <laughs> gratitude journals green yeah, smoothies, yeah, meditation a, a good a good diary i've got to say and, and i actually is, have a gratitude diary so I we're, not, we're not slamming that for people that. listening we're not slamming are, that for people listening there, is, there are not enough men who, who who diary and that's where self-reflection comes from so i would i would say that that's something to to consider because that's really that idea of like where am i what's going on what do i need to shift up here you know saying that stuff and writing it out um, can can be really useful. Nonetheless, um, something yeah that is really important is that before the shit hits the fan, there are so many avenues um, to go down to really look after yourself. And um, you know we all are, are very active people. You know exercise is is the greatest tool that you've got in your um, repertoire, and so everyone should be be leaning on that. And the thing that's really important is the the idea that you know the more upset and and tired and depressed you become the less likely you feel to, to want to do anything when that's the exact thing that you need to do so pushing past that and i just end up being a motivational coach like tony robbins just screaming at people to go and do shit so <laughs> that's where i sit um but for, for those people i really do think that um social connection is like what we're on earth for it's it's what drives people to to be better to to have fun to wake up in the morning and so you know, there's incredible organizations like Mr. Perfect, for instance, as well, mm. who do, you know, barbecue meetups um, and, and just trying to make sure that you have people in your corner um, that understand you, that you can talk to and that you can just have a fun time with. And, and that's what I mean about when it comes to, to lockdown and the pandemic and looking forward to things. It's like, let's talk about what we love, what we want to do next. And, and let's, you know, live with that. I'm with you so much on that, Zach, of the importance of hope and being positive. And I know from my own experiences working with patients in tough situations, you can always find hope. And that is such a powerful tool of our ability to endure those tough times. Mm. Um, and what you said, you know, to summarize, I think, you know, being self-aware, knowing, as you said, prevention is better than the cure when it comes to our mental health and that we are evolved to need social connection and, you know, those things that are so important, fundamentally important to us, they're non-negotiables. Um, and Zach, you have so much knowledge. I think we could have picked your brains for hours and hours, um, but you're a very busy man with lots of things to do. So we will look at wrapping up, but we ask all of our guests one more question at the end. And that is a very simple challenge for Hugo and I to try and do in the next week for our own mental health. It could be to drink a green smoothie every day. It could be to do our gratitude diary. It could be which um, last year or last season we got to, to simply make your bed each morning. So it could be any of those. Uh, it can be as simple as you want to make it. Zach. So without overthinking it, give us one challenge. Beautiful. I love that. 
I think that the the one thing that I I want you to guys to do is to make sure that you put aside five minutes every day to check on one person in your life, a different person every day, and to just throw out something to them. And this is the thing that it's, I, I want it to be the people who are really far down in your, in your uh, iPhone contact list. Cause it's, it's those random, you know, flickers of hope. I think that, that really brighten people's days. And I know that both of your, uh, your names jumping up on someone's phone is going to brighten their day. I love that Zach. And if you, you flip it, I must admit when I receive a text message from someone, whether it be through Facebook chat or little text message, someone just asking how you're going or checking in, it's, it's something funny how something as simple as a text message can just bring a little smile to your face. So a great challenge, Zach. And hopefully the listeners playing along at home can, um, can do that. But look, we do appreciate your time. We know you're a busy man. Um, I really value your chats. And I just want to, from the bottom of my heart, um, truly thank you for the important work you're doing. And it's, um, it's really inspiring and almost motivating for me to see people in your space working so hard with, with amazing foundations like Movember with, with the Men in Mind projects and, and um, you know, all the important work you do. So thank you, Zach. And we really appreciated your time today. The future is bright. See you <laughs> later, Zach. Indeed. Thanks again. Cheers.